I want to talk about Passover, and I want to talk about the symbols and so forth. One of the things that we are commanded, it's in Exodus 12:26. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the key there is you are instructed to tell your children. What happens with the Passover Seder is it child-centered. You have a place in the ceremony where children ask questions and so forth. But the idea here is to keep the memory alive. Now, one of the things that's going on in the world is history is being destroyed. One of the things that has kept the Jews identifiable and separate as a people is this story and the command to do it every year and talk about it. Now, give you a couple of thoughts. A people with no past has no future. So as your past is being destroyed, what's happening is you cease to be a people and you cease to have a future as a people. The individual unit human beings may go on, but you're not a people anymore. It's like a cut flower. You go out to the garden and you cut a flower and you bring it in and you put it in the vase and it just looks beautiful and it smells wonderful for about three or four days and then it dies. Anything severed from its roots may be beautiful for a while, but eventually it dies. So what Passover is designed to do is connect the people of God to their roots and keep them firmly rooted and keep them connected to their history. And God's appointed times as Moedim tell a story. And as you go through the year, every year, and you celebrate God's Moedim, what you're doing is you're getting a story repeated over and over again. And God set that up that way on purpose. Now, one of the things that has happened with the split of the church and the synagogue, Christianity has gone off and they've been severed from their roots. Now, don't get me wrong. The Jews also went off into the bushes themselves. That's why they get periodically sent into exile is because they go into idolatry and assimilation and all that kind of stuff. So I've thrown rocks at humanity in general. And one of the things that the Jews were designed to do, and it's in Exodus 20, is they were supposed to be a priesthood, a holy nation. The Gentiles were always going to come into the kingdom. You can see that clear back in the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12, and it goes through all the prophets. So the idea that the Gentiles were going to come in and be part of the kingdom of God has always been part of God's plan. And what God's plan was is he was going to use the Jews and their stories and so forth to bring everybody in. And I'm not throwing rocks at Jews or Christians, I'm throwing rocks at people. And what happens is, of course, they went astray and they got all split up. And instead of being a nation of priests, only the Levites were priests. And then we get this whole Christmas tree, if you will, of rules and traditions that serve to separate the Jews from everybody else. So in biblical times, and in fact today with the Orthodox, they won't come into your house and eat with you. So how can you be a priest to somebody that you won't associate with? 
And again, this is not saying anything against Jews per se. Everybody does this kind of thing. This is human. And what's happened is we have separated and been atomized and cut off from each other so we don't have a continuity between the events of the Exodus and where we are today. And the separation and destruction of history has been deliberate. And we can see it happening in our own society as our history is being separated and destroyed. And that's the fastest way to atomize and destroy a people. It was God's intention that we should all be a nation, one people in the kingdom of God, led by the Hebrews. That was the goal. That's what he said. So, okay, the first thing we do is we split and scatter the Hebrews all over the place so that they're not terribly effective. Still remain identifiable, but they're not the effective force they're supposed to be. Then when Yeshua comes out out of Judaism, what happens the next is the Christians and the Jews separate so that the Christians are now off doing their own thing and the Jews are off doing their own thing. So instead of being the kingdom of God unified, we're in these little pockets, everybody doing his own thing. That's where we are. And that's how it's happened. So what I wanted to do is take you through some of the symbols of Passover. And I want to show you what they mean specifically to the Jews, to the Hebrews, because they're the ones that actually went through these events. And so everything in the Passover commandments, if you will, is specific to something that happens to Israel. But everything there is also symbolic to the Gentiles. So it's specific to Israel because they lived through it. It's symbolic to us because we didn't live through it. But the way it's set up is it means something to everybody. And that's the way it was designed. So what I want to talk to you about is four symbols. And then I'm going to add a fifth. So the four symbols I'm going to talk about is the firstborn. The second one is the lamb. The third one is blood. And then the fourth one is bread. Notice those are all symbols of the Passover. Those are all commanded in Exodus 12. You all had a Passover Seder last night here. And by the way, great job. I understand it was wonderful. My dear wife and I were down doing the same thing with our children and grandchildren. So you all recognize these symbols. And what I want to do is talk to you about each of these symbols in the context of what they meant to Israel at the time. Why were those symbols chosen from Israel's perspective and what they mean to us today? So let's start with the firstborn. Very, very first vignette right after the garden is we had a struggle over who the firstborn is going to be. Cain and Abel. Cain, who was the literal firstborn, brought a sacrifice that wasn't pleasing to God. Two of them cracked heads and his brother died. So there has always been struggle over the firstborn. We see it in Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the firstborn of Abraham. Isaac is the one that's chosen. We see the same thing with Jacob and Esau. We see the same thing with Joseph and his brothers. Jacob regarded Joseph as his firstborn because he was the firstborn of the wife that he truly loved. Well, the problem with that, of course, is there's ten other brothers who are born 
in time ahead of him and they have got their nose out of joint so they all get together and jump Joseph and sell him into slavery so this struggle about the firstborn has been going on ever since Genesis 3 the firstborn is important because the firstborn represents the future now notice the word firstborn the implication there is that there's going to be others it's just like first fruits when you bring the first fruits of your harvest into God you're not expecting to starve you're expecting that it is the first of an abundant harvest so the title firstborn implies that there's going to be more so what God does in Exodus 4 one of the things he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh is Israel is my firstborn turn them loose because I'm going to get my firstborn to do what I've called my firstborn to do and if you don't turn them loose I'm going to kill your firstborn that's clear back in Exodus 4 so God regards Israel as the firstborn and that fits with them being the nation of priests it fits with them being the ones who are to carry the word of God into the world and it fits with them bringing the nations to God that's the job of a firstborn they're the first and so everybody else is supposed to come in eventually now slavery why were they in slavery well they were in slavery because exile is therapeutic you've all heard me do this riff before but God sends Israel into exile specifically to correct a problem that they have and the poster child here is the exile to Babylon they fell into idolatry fine you guys want to do idolatry we'll send you to idol central we'll send you to Babylon well Israel sold their firstborn Joseph into slavery oh you want to sell somebody into slavery fine we'll teach you about slavery and they go down to Egypt and they weren't slaves all that time but at the end of the exercise down in Egypt they become slaves and the message there is this is what it's like to be a slave you don't like being a slave so when I bring you out of there you need to understand emotionally and physically what it's like to be a slave so that's why they were enslaved and they had descended into sin and death just like everybody else does I mean this is not again specific to the Hebrews and what happens when you're in sin and death is you're a slave to sin so they're a slave to Pharaoh and they're also a slave to the world and they're a slave to sin so God has to deliver them out of all of that so that's the deal with the firstborn so then the lamb in Exodus 12:4, it says you shall take a lamb according to the number of souls in your house most of your translations have people or something like that but the Hebrew is according to the number of souls in your house you shall take a lamb or a goat also everywhere else in scripture this flock refers to lambs but here it's a lamb or a goat what do those symbols mean to Israel well those symbols mean to Israel the deceiving of Jacob by the brothers by the blood of a goat remember we had the goat that got slaughtered 
and the brothers brought back his bloody coat. And what you have is you have goats run all the way through Israel because God says, I want you to remember your history. This is where you came from. This is what your ancestors did. Don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget where you came from. So in that sense, the blood of the lamb or the goat is highly symbolic to Israel. And of course, to us in the nations, we see then the sacrificial lamb and ultimately the sacrifice of Yeshua. We see that going through our history. So to us, the Exodus lamb or goat is symbolic. To them, it was something they lived through. Now, let's look at uh, the blood. Blood is characteristic of birth. For those of you ladies who have been through the process and those of you gentlemen who were involved in that process, you know what it is. It's messy. So blood is going to indicate rebirth. Deliverance from sin and death requires rebirth. Remember, Paul says... The wages of sin is death. Well, if you're going to be delivered from it, you must die and be reborn. That's the whole business of born again. And by the way, that is not Christian, that's Jewish, Hebrew. It goes all the way back. And the idea is periodically everybody falls into the realm of death. I mean, it's something that we do as humans, and it is not necessarily sinful. So, God forbid, your Uncle Samuel dies and you have to take care of his body, then you've entered the realm of death for a time. You haven't sinned, you haven't done anything wrong, but you have to give a transition back to life. And that's what the mikvah or the baptism does. You go down into the waters of death and you symbolically come up on the other side, born again. So, these symbols are not Christian. They are Christian because they're symbolic to us. But they're not original with us. It goes clear back in our history to the Hebrews. Clear back in the Torah. Let's look at bread. A couple weeks ago, I did a whole hour on bread. First use of bread in Scripture is after the fall. Before that, people chow was the fruit of the trees. After the fall, people chow became bread. So bread, if you will, is symbolic of having been thrown out of the garden. Bread is also the thing that we get fed with now. And unleavened bread, which is the element of the Passover, represents bread without sin. So what we're doing is we're starting from the garden where you have bread as the food of fallen people. Step number two is unleavened bread. Ah, So we're going to get the sin, if you will, out of the bread. Step number three is going to be the bread of heaven, manna coming down and feeding us. Step number four we read about today where Yeshua says, I'm the bread. The bread is me. And all of this stuff that you have gone through over the centuries is by way of moving you to a place where you can understand that. That's the whole point of the exercise. So bread is an extremely important part. Now, that was four. I'm going to give you five. We're going to talk about birth. 
What's the business with the blood of the lamb smeared over the outside of the house? Now, you can say, well, we're not going to need the house anymore, so we'll just go ahead and smear it with blood so that we can leave it for the Egyptians to clean up. Again, it's highly symbolic because everybody's got to be somewhere. And nobody can be two places at the same time. We've got two firstborns involved here. We've got the firstborn of God, which is the nation Israel. We have the firstborn of Egypt, which symbolically is the firstborn of the world. Only one of them is going to live, because there can only be one firstborn. Everybody's got to be somewhere, and nobody can be two places at once. So if the firstborn is Egypt, then God's firstborn is stillborn. If the firstborn is Israel, then what we have to do is we have to have a birth. So as they're sitting in their, whatever they're living in, their houses, their huts, or whatever it is, and they are consuming the lamb, what they are doing is they are painting the door through which they will be born with blood. Remember I said earlier, birth is a messy process. So what they do is they are symbolically creating the entrance to the world for the firstborn. So what you're seeing is a birth as Israel comes out of the bloody door and into the world. That's what's going on with that symbol. When you have a birth, you have blood, and what else do you have? Water, because the woman's water breaks and you have a flush of water. Well, where's the water? The Red Sea. And what happens is two go into the Red Sea. Israel goes in, Egypt goes in. One of them is born again and comes out the other side. One of them is stillborn and dies in the sea. That's what the symbols mean. And they mean something to Israel because Israel had to live through it, but they mean something to us because we should be connected to Israel and we should understand these symbols in the same way they do. For us, they're symbolic, Gentiles. For Israel, they're real. I started off with a people disconnected from its history has no future. One of the things God does as he sets this whole thing up, and this wasn't roll your own, by the way, this was all set up and planned by God. What it becomes is a really understandable story. As I explained to you what happened there, that there can only be one firstborn, and in order for a firstborn to exist, there has to be a birth, and we have all of these symbols of birth going on in the Passover. That's so you can understand it and remember it. That's so you can tell it to your children in a way that is understandable. I mean, you know, depending on their age, the technical details may not be necessary, but you understand what I'm saying. God sets this all up in human terms so it's understandable to us and it's relatable and it makes a good story. That's the whole purpose of it is it makes a good story so we keep telling that story so that we don't lose our history. And as we go through them this year, each one of God's appointed times, his Moedim, his feasts, are part of a story 
and the symbols there are going to be used consistently and it's going to tell the entire story of salvation starting with the birth of the firstborn winding up with the return of the Messiah everything is laid out if you will in those feasts and that's why they're set up that way so that we can celebrate the feast and we can tell the story and we will know what our history is as we do that and as I say for Jews it's their history for us who are Gentiles who have been brought in which was always part of the plan it's so we understand it slightly different way but we understand the same thing so tomorrow when we have our first fruits celebration another one of God's feasts not Easter it's first fruits just happens to fall on the pagan Easter this year doesn't always but the deal there is resurrection so we'll talk about resurrection tomorrow and oh by the way I have to say this carefully resurrection is kind of a big deal but it's not unique to Yeshua it happens in the Hebrew scriptures you've got the Shunammites son that is raised from the dead you've got Jonah that's raised from the dead you've got Yeshua when he walks the land raises people from the dead and the whole idea there starting clear back in the history books Elijah, Elisha and so forth is everybody should understand that resurrection is possible this isn't something that this bastard child from Mary just sort of walked up and said okay I'm gonna that would have been absurd because nobody would have believed it because they didn't have any history of it so what we have is we have these historical events remember our history they have these historical events that show that this has happened before so when it happens again it shouldn't be a big surprise the whole point here is knowing our history because our history is our future and as we get severed from our history and as I say it's one of Satan's great triumphs that he was able to sever the church from the Hebrews because the Hebrews were supposed to be teaching the church about God the kingdom because they're supposed to know it so as we get severed into little chunks and everybody's off doing his own thing and rolling his own and whatever what's happening is we're losing the plot so the Jews God bless them have lost the business with this is the Messiah we've lost the business of wait a minute there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here and it isn't just sort of waltzing around saying a little Jesus prayer and all of a sudden everything's fine there's a whole lot more to it but these histories have been severed so as you go out there first off tell the story tell the story to anybody that will listen to you talk to them about the history of the world as God has set it up because you can see all of that history laid out in his yearly cycle you see it over and over and over again and that's so you remember it that's so it's an entertaining story that's when you tell your children and you can make it really exciting and entertaining and make them interested it's not some dry technical theological stuff it's a great story so tell it as a great story 
That's why he set it up that way. And he set it up in human terms. Bread, blood, birth. All of those things are things people know about. So you can tell the story in the context of things people understand. He did it that way on purpose. The other thing is, hold on to your history. Teach your history. There's a great history that this country has lived through. Most of it, at least initially, was based on Torah. That's worth preserving. Just as the history of the Exodus all the way through to the crucifixion are worth preserving. Because if you lose your history, you lose your cohesiveness. You cease to be a people. Thank you.